This is episode 165, the lost episode, because sometimes you forget to release an episode to the public and only release it to Patreon. But joking aside, this was a conversation with Galen Reynolds, who is just a phenomenal ultra runner, super long distance, super tough races out in Europe. He's one of the best in the world. Alyssa Clark and I chatted with him few months back and i can't wait to share this episode with you it was absolutely mind-blowing uh mind-blowingly difficult like i didn't know i could be in that much pain and and have my brain like totally explode uh so (laughs) (laughs) if we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire the possibilities are endless i'll tell you about it when it happened in the race but to be honest with you it happened even before the race it happened in the training. A great cause. Oh, thank you. Man. I respect that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. Jam Jam, Jamil Curry here from Era Viper Running, and welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey, everyone. It's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here. This is Tim Tweetmeyer. Run a few Western states in the days. I was physically totally wrecked. I I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? Decided if I could, you know, finish a 50 miler, I could probably run across the country. Right now, I'd say that my beers per day is still higher than my miles (laughs) per day that I'm running. 100 miles is not that far. Hey, this is Carl Meltzer, the Speed Goat, and I want to welcome everybody to the Training for Ultra podcast. Welcome to episode 165 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name is Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra, and we have Galen Reynolds on, just one of the best super hard ultra runners out in Europe. It's an honor to have him on the show. Alyssa Clark on co-host, and this was recorded a few months back, but I just realized that I had only released it to Patreon. So some episodes get like very early sneak peeks on Patreon, which I really appreciate all those supporters. Consider supporting the podcast and TV video efforts um, on Patreon. But I realized that, uh, yeah, I had made a mistake in this episode was lost to the general public. So I'm really excited to be able to share it. Big thank you to Alyssa Clark for taking time to co-host this one. And big shout out to Exoskin, their giant supporter of the podcast. With Rapid Dry Copper, you have super lightweight fabric technology for any season. It has a two-way stretch XO waistband that won't roll, bunch, or pinch. With sweat traps and air channel ducts for rapid wicking and fast drying. XO Underwear. Wear them to go running, hiking, work, everywhere. And so really quick, my lead man training update for this week. Um, I left it out of the previous episode. I am, so I'm, I'm leveraging off of building consistency. Things are getting a little bit more normal. Yeah, I'm a runner that typically does five to six days a week. And just life's busy right now, so it's hard to get those miles in. But I do feel like consistency is building back. And last week, I intentionally slowed things down to about a 10-minute 10, 10 pace on average. 
and just stretch things out a little bit. So I started off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with 10 mile efforts. I think I did all those on the treadmill just to make it all work because I figure if I don't have to get a bunch of gear put together, um, I can actually save myself like two miles of, of time and it's good mental training. I know a lot of people are like, how do you run on a treadmill? Um, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be able to just turn my brain off essentially. And, uh, that's, it's really good mental training, honestly, physically. Yes, for sure. So it was, I think it was only like a 45 mile week, but that's the most miles I've gotten in, in a long time. So I'm leveraging off consistency, adding in a little bit more miles, and I'm going to throw in a longer effort this week. I think Saturday, May 15th, uh, bigger than the trail. My, my buddy, Tommy Byrne has a charity. Uh, so it's like $25 on ultra sign up and you can pick whatever distance you want. I think I'm going to do a super chill 50 K. So I'm going to like intentionally hike. I'm going to build in my mental aspect of ultra running into this long run. So I'm going to treat it as if I'm running a hundred miles, that type of mentality, that type of pace. I'm going to practice nutrition. I'm going to use my Psalm impact that I've been testing out and we're going to go from there. But Again, it's more about time on my feet. I'm going to probably bring my watch just to make sure I hit that mileage because it's a virtual race. But regardless, you know, this will hopefully be a confidence booster. And I'd like to spend a good, you know, several hours on my feet getting this done. And I think you guys should consider checking out that virtual race. It's, you know, very reasonably priced and it's a very good charity. So... Anyways, let's get to it. This is our episode with uh, Galen Reynolds. I hope you enjoy it. The Lost Episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. We are joined here by Galen Reynolds. He is a legend of multi-day, multi-distance European running and has taken on, you know, just about the easiest uh, multi-day events you can think of, um, especially in Europe. And we also have a co-host today, Rob Steger. How's it going? Thanks Sorry. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Rob. <laughs> really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, he, he wanted me to give a go. So, uh, Galen, thanks for joining us all the way across the pond. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's great. I, I've always been a fan of the podcast, and uh, it's so exciting to be actually a part of it now. I mean, tell oh, us where, awesome. you're, where you're coming from. So, I'm currently in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Nice. And they have trails there, I assume, or else you probably oh, they, would be not interested in living there, correct? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we just had the, the opportunity to live kind of remotely as we, we put the, the business online. And so we looked around Europe and uh, Slovenia is such an amazing kind of a hidden gem of trails and natural attractions. So we thought this would be the perfect place. And talk about good timing on putting your business online. That's Did you do that before uh covid or was it due to covid well actually it was due to covid so okay yeah i, I wish we had planned it but no it kind of happened to us um luckily it's going okay so far nice and where were you before just to uh i've been in london for about 10 years okay nice it seems um, like um you 
I don't recommend looking at his ultra sign up uh, quite yet. Do not pause and go look at it because you'll just be mortified of your own. Um, <laughs> tell tell us how you got into running. Have you always been a runner? I want to hear about your story finding this odd sport of ultra running. Yeah, absolutely. So I was a ice hockey player for most of my life. Uh, oh my up- gosh! Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Are you a fan, Alyssa? I I played hockey. Rob was a huge hockey player. That's awesome. Excellent. Yeah, so, uh, well, you guys know, so it's a totally different experience. So we moved to London for work uh, 10 years ago, and I wanted to play hockey, so I looked up uh, local teams, and there was a couple. But then I realized there's only three ice hockey rinks in all of London at the time, and that's, you know, 16 million people for three rinks. Uh, So it was a huge travel to get to. Every time we'd go out, there's tons of people. So really, you do about three hours of travel plus waiting around, and you get 15 minutes of ice time. So I thought I needed something a bit more efficient. So I picked up uh, an extreme challenge book, you know, one of those kind of airport books that has a list of ridiculous races in them. Uh, and I came across, uh, there's stuff like the Norsemen, uh, various adventure races, and then there was the UTMB. And I thought, well, all this other stuff needs so much equipment. Running, you know, I just get a pair of trainers and my basketball shorts, and I'll be out the door. Uh, so this, at this time, I just finished uh, school, and I was quite overweight. So I wanted something that I could easily do and lose some weight. So I did choose running. I saw the UTMB in the book and thought, oh, that's great. I'll just go hike this trail during this race and, and finish it. Uh, and that, obviously, you know, you got to qualify for it, get the points. And that's what led me uh, initially into, into running. And uh, it all started with trying to go out the door. Uh, using the old, actually, I don't know if they have it still, but those Nike, it's the Nike Plus uh, kind of mm-hmm. maps your run or, or uh, tracks your run. So I got the door. The GPS signal was awful. And so I did a run, and I couldn't run a mile. I, I'd run for uh, about a minute, then have to walk, uh, run again, and, and walk. At the, end of the, at the end of the run, it took me about an hour, and I think I did about three miles, but the GPS was incorrect, and it told me I did six miles. So I thought I was doing pretty well. Uh, until later, I realized I actually done three miles in so an hour. Was it that foot pod thing, or I'm trying to remember? It was, it was just on the phone, and it was that thing that always gave you oh, okay, just on the phone. Like, yeah, yeah. Keep running. Ah, <laughs> uh, good, good times. I can relate to that story for some reason. Not sure why. It, <laughs> it's fascinating to me that you basically didn't know anything else other than just UTMB seemed like a fun race, and so. I'm just wondering if that affected as you develop as an ultra runner, not really knowing what hard is or everything might've seemed easy, relatively speaking. And so, I mean, do you think that played any kind of factor into how you developed as an ultra runner? Yeah, I think I've actually never thought of it that way, but I think you're absolutely right. I was never a part of a running group. I never knew anything about running and I just got right into it. And I thought, well, I did know UTMB was extreme. But I didn't really know how crazy that was. And I never ran a marathon leading up to this. I just ran um, dirt sort of uh, races and stuff, trying to build up the, the distance. So it, it was just a completely, I guess, a bubble uh, look at getting into ultras and not knowing just how absolutely insane they really are. It, was probably, like, it actually probably helped me being naive to the whole situation uh, not being scared away from it. Yeah. So what was, what was the time... Um, from picking up that book to doing UTMB and what came in between that to get the qualifying points? Like what was your first uh, race distance? So the first race distance was a, it was a 10 K and I just, I thought 
I, I didn't even read a training book, so I didn't know. I, I had no idea what I was doing. So I thought that I'd, I'd go 10K, half marathon. This is all on the trail, so like they're kind of hilly. Uh, half marathon, then marathon. And I, I would do this every month. I'd up the distance every month until I got to 100 miler. Um, so I went uh, half marathon, marathon. And then I think I did a, I did a 50 miler, then a 60 miler, and then a 100 miler, which is ridiculous and just an awful idea looking back on it. Uh, but it did get me there quickly. So it was just a lot of local races in the UK that I did to get the, the qualifying points. Um, I hadn't really gone to the continent uh, and uh, to see like those massive races like the UTMB. So I didn't have any experience. I didn't know how big this sport really was until I stepped on the starting line of UTMB and nearly pooped my pants because I was so nervous and how scary the whole uh, setup is. I want to hear, so as you're progressing, are you losing weight because of your running? Have you made some like drastic diet change? Is it a combination of the two? kind of want to hear more about that aspect and more yeah, just so, generally about weight loss. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the whole point to get into it was, was just being healthier. Uh, so I moved to the UK, and I think there was it just made it easier to totally transition from one diet to another. So I was in school uh, eating awfully, eating McDonald's and stuff just because I, I didn't have much time. So when I got over, I was like, I'm just going to change right now uh, to this new setting. I'm not going to get back into uh, my old habits. So I started about 220 pounds. Um, and by the end of that first year, so that was 2012, I think, by the end of that first season where I finished the, the 100 miler within, I think it was about eight months, uh, I'd lost, I think it was about uh, 40 or 50 pounds. Okay. So it was, a, it was a massive change in like I had I needed new clothes because my clothes like were not fitting at all anymore. So um, yeah, it was, it was much different because I remember I didn't go back home to, to Canada or see any friends from, from school until after this. And I came back and they're just like, whoa, like, who is this person? <laughs> what they do to you over there? <laughs> <laughs> like, do they, do they have food in the UK? <laughs> did, you, did you hold on to your old clothes because you weren't convinced that your weight loss was for real? I, I <laughs> held on to my jeans for like four years. They're size 36 waist. And I was convinced I was just going to like regress back. <laughs> Yeah, I I, uh, I didn't. I, I said like, there's no going back. I just need to, you know, commit to it. Um, so no, I don't think I kept them. I wanted to to get rid of them as quickly as I could, actually. Nice. And and so were your energy levels vastly changed after the weight loss? And I just I'm interested to know like how your day to day life changed as you start running regularly. Yeah, I think it was hard to tell because since I was increasing the mileage so quickly, which was you know, it's not recommended at all. Uh, I, my energy levels were probably lower, but then when the, the following year, when I made I had a more consistent schedule and I wasn't increasing so rapidly, my then I really noticed my energy levels and just like overall uh, well-being increased. So that was 2013. I, I would say that the energy levels pick, started picking up, uh, and I guess maybe you're just getting accustomed to that kind of mileage as well. I mean, and what did your Go ahead. Wife or girlfriend, partner at the time, um, think about all of this. So she actually, she as uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, she started with me during this during this journey, and uh, it was pretty interesting. So she was just doing it because you know, I was doing it, and she wasn't. She's not really interested in, in running. Uh, so she was doing it. And she was like, she was kicking my ass the whole time because she was so much fitter when we started. Uh, but by the end of it, she wouldn't always, you know, like, oh, I've got work to do, so I'm not going to necessarily come out on the long run this week. So by the end of it, I was actually then beating her, and 
and actually work with the the clinic because that's when we started our own business there in 2013. So that got too busy, and she uh, sort of focused on that more, and then I kept running. So she was supportive, uh, but uh, although when the training got when I started taking running seriously, kind of like 2017, I think, um, she's like, wow, this is taking a significant amount of time now. What would your yeah. old hockey buddies from Canada say when you came back? I mean, uh, they, any they, of them runners, hikers, or totally no, different sports? For, <laughs> exactly. They think running's for wimps and like, you know, you've, <laughs> you've given up on life if you're a runner now. Uh, <laughs> just knowing what you've done, that's just the most hilarious thing. I, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm convinced pain tolerance, like, I don't know if I include it in the book, but I've been checked so hard, you know, I've, I've hit the boards with nosebleeds and thrown down big checks myself, but I was, I was a little guy and had a goon protect me most of the time, but, uh, I'm convinced that translates into like endurance sports with like, it, you have a broken pain threshold like you can just keep going yeah. more than maybe a normal uh non-hockey player but maybe that's way far-fetched i don't know i don't know i think that that could be true because i yeah like you said i've been hit so hard do you i don't know if you wore a full cage like those uh yeah i did sort of I, I was full, lucky yeah. enough to start hockey okay. a little later yeah yeah it's the same here but i've been hit so hard it, it's dented that thing into where it was almost touching my face like it, so uh wow yeah it's been some extreme uh hits i guess so maybe you're right. Maybe you're onto something there. I should, uh, you know, track that. It sounds like a doctorate uh, college <laughs> thesis or something. So the crossover, of yeah, and yeah. extreme ultra running. Yeah, get a doctorate in pain. Um, <laughs> so take us back to the start line when you're clinching and uh, scared. <laughs> at, you know, starting UTMB. Yeah. So. Uh, well, I'm sure you've probably seen the, the YouTubes, but so the Conquest of Paradise is playing over the loudspeakers, and there's there's people clapping, all the balconies are filled, and I'm just like, what is happening? I was also late to the start line, because I got stuck in traffic, so I, I literally ran to the start line, uh, <laughs> and then there's a massive crowd, which is actually really hard to get to the front, because uh, the, the cameras always follow the top guys who run out like at, I don't know, four-minute miles, it seems like, and just go absolutely bonkers down the, the main stretch of Chamonix. Uh, so I was in the back and totally crammed in like a sardine forever. So the, the gun goes or the horn goes, everyone runs off and you can hear people clapping and you don't move. So you're like, whoa, what's going on? So like, oh, am I doing something wrong? Like 10 minutes later, or seemingly, then you start moving. Yeah. And I felt like I was so far behind the uh, eight ball when we got going. I just totally overcooked it. And I was just too excited and with all the crowds and the music. And um, I, I went way too hard. And unfortunately, it was a slightly warm year. I think it was uh, high tw- uh, 20 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is. Probably uh, about 80 Fahrenheit. Um, and I overcooked it for the whole first three hours or so. And I got rhabdomyolysis, which I didn't know what that was at the time. So I was peeing what looked like coffee. Uh, and like my, my, uh, I could feel this really intense pain lower down. But I just thought it was a nutritional thing. Uh, but yes. that sort of carried over for the whole race. So every step I took, I could feel this like little pain in my like lower abdomen. Um, always coming back and so that made for a really interesting interesting race uh, it also was the first time I had running hallucinations which I didn't really believe in until I actually started having them well you, Sorry, was, you can't you can't throw that little carrot out there without me following up <laughs> let's let's hear I mean perfect segue right let's hear about them <laughs> yeah so 
so the hallucinations, um, which I've learned, get way more intense during the tour. Uh, so this yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. So the hallucinations of UTMB. Um, so I took thirty hours to finish it the first time there, and I, I it was when I would look at things from far away and it would turn into something different. So I thought I saw an airplane hangar, which was actually a glacier, uh, in the distance, and I was like, that's a really bizarre place to put a really beautiful airport hangar. Uh, so there's little things like that, but that actually turns out to not be that bad considering what it can get into later on and uh when you know it's taking about 80 plus hours to finish a race mm-hmm. yeah, sure and also rob has done ccc so he does know like that area um quite a bit i know the, like the utmb two-thirds or what is it three-fourths of that course yeah um, yeah from Cormier around. yeah right. it, it's you described the uh beginning of that race perfectly besides the um <laughs> dodging all the hiking poles i mean did yeah, you have any totally issues like on that front i think i was so far in the back that everyone was walking for a long time so we walked for what seemed like forever until we got a little bit more open and then everyone started running uh, i don't i don't really recall the hiking poles being too big an issue although going up that first pass which i can't remember the name of now but i think called the bonome or something um i do remember having to like just wait for the person in front of me to move on a little bit because he was pretty wily with his hiking poles and like they were jutting around near like my face when he was going up so uh yeah it did it was an issue later on um i mean so tell us when when you bonked at utmb and and walk us through how you get through going out too hard at utmb and finish sub 30 hours uh I think it was just, I actually sat down to one of the aid stations. Uh, so three hours in or four hours in, I, I was just feeling so awful. Uh, as My internal temperature, I think, was was heating up and it was really hot. So I sat there and it was night now and the temperature is going down. Everyone else is starting to put on their jackets and I'm still sweating. I'm just sitting there sweating in the in the chair, uh, just drinking liquids and, and trying to take food in. So I literally sat there for 20 minutes and just took a breather. Uh, reflected myself, just being like, this is, I feel really awful right now, but I'm going to, this has been three or four years in the making, so I'm going to finish this race. And 20 minutes after, I didn't feel that much better, but I just started walking out into the night and then up at the hill. And I was going slower than people around me, so they're all passing me, but I just, uh, I felt better and better as I went up the hill. I think probably even the cooler air was cooling my body temperature, and I think just everything was resetting probably. So it was just, I just slowed it way down and just walked it until I felt like I could run again. That's nice. a good strategy. So how do you <laughs> go from um, a 30-hour UTMB to, like, what was the next steps? And when did you start realizing, hmm, maybe I, maybe there's something here? So I, I think, I do remember having this kind of epiphany moment. So I ran the UTMB, and I didn't know what running training was. But then I was, I was starting to look more into ultra training and, you know, just Googling it and trying to find training programs. And then I remember joining this, I joined Strava around that time. And then I remember seeing people run seven days a week and that blew my mind. Like, I didn't know you could run seven days a week. Uh, so joining like those groups, uh, there's a race here in the UK called the Lakeland uh, 100, which is a really famous, probably one of their biggest uh, mountain races here. So I joined the group there because I was running that race. And then I looked at, you know, the leaderboards. So I was looking at uh, what people were doing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm training five days a week. These people are doing seven days of running, plus sometimes doubles, which so my mind was totally blown. And I'm like, oh, I'm, this is a whole other level that I haven't reached yet. Uh, and I felt like when I was in races, I would always be around people and I would be suffering way more than they were. And I was like, well, why is this happening? And obviously it was because I was not really as trained as I should be. So I, I wanted to try it. I just wanted to see what would happen if I trained 
hard. And so in 2017, I did start training seven days a week and put a lot more time into it and more focus and thought about like how all this, this works and get more into the training. So that's how I kind of went a little bit harder and, and, and focused more. So that was what, and then increased, then the results started coming. I won my first race that year. And I was like, whoa, what am I doing in first place? Like, this is so weird. Obviously, there, there's something wrong. I must, like, everyone else must have gotten lost. <laughs> um, so were your, had you built up a base level fitness to the point where you could do seven days a week and not have any injuries? I mean, it sounds like you were smart about this build up to seven days of running per week. Yeah. I think it was just going back to just being totally naive because the first four years or five years, I was running five days a week and that was probably actually building up the base to enable me to do to the seven days a week and do the harder training. Uh, so I think that was, it just worked out not knowingly. That makes sense. And then how do you go from, I mean, UTB, UTMB, clearly not the easiest of a hundred, some would say <laughs> very difficult, but then how do you then go from that to like, Tour de Jean and Dragon's Back because that's another even another level above that. Right. So uh, after UTMB, the reason I wanted to UTMB is to see if I could do it. And then after I finished it, I said, "What's next? What what do I not know that I can complete?" And then I found the Tour de Jean. And at the time, so it was 2015. At the time, I was just looking it up. I'd heard about it, but it, the the website was really not very uh, informative. And so I couldn't even tell if it was a start, stop, or sorry, a start and continuous race. Like it was not clear to me if, if that was the case. And there was no race reports in English. So uh, I did obviously figure it out. It was a nonstop race. And I was like, I have no idea if I can complete that. And I didn't even know that it could be humanly possible that someone could run around 200 plus miles uh, over mountain passes and, and actually still be alive at the end of it. So I thought that would be an excellent uh, test to see if I could even complete it. That's unbelievable. I mean, 2017, you were a slacker. Transvaal, Kenya, <laughs> Iger, oh, that was bad. Yeah. just some nice, easy runs. And then it sounds like you, you probably threw in another few races. I mean, what race did you win? And I want to hear more about how that felt going from Canadian hockey player to winning <laughs> probably a, a fairly competitive European ultra. So it was... Uh, it was a 30 miles. It was a trail marathon, they called it, but it was about 30 miles. Uh, it was hilly. It was kind of a local race. So I think there's only about 150 racers in it. And there was river crossings and those, you know, like you're waiting across the river. And so I trained hard leading into it. This was before Transvalcania. Uh, I don't know if it's on Ultra Sign Up. Actually, I don't think it registered with any of the ITRA or any of the sort of the websites. So I was running in the, I, I, the at the beginning of the race, I was in the front pack and I was like, whoa, this is really strange. I must be going out too hard. So I slowed down, uh, but kept a pretty steady pace throughout the race. And I kept passing people, but I wasn't paying attention to my placing because I wasn't even thinking of uh, podium or anything. And it was such a far uh, cry from where I started because at the beginning when I started doing the races, my only goal is not to come in last. Well, apart from finishing, it was just don't come in last. Uh, I could come in second last and I'd be really happy with that. <laughs> just don't come so, in last. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, actually, I yeah, well, I came down to the wire once, but uh, sorry, back to the, the race. Uh, and I remember coming up to this guy. So we were going up a hill and I was kind of shuffling up the hill and he was walking and he looked at me and he looked he gave me this look, and I, I remember seeing this look, and I was like, oh, that's a really, why is he, like, staring me down a little bit? So I go up to him, like, hey, how you doing? Like, what's happening? And he's like, hey, um, how many people are in front of you? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not counting. And I was like, oh, 
what, what, how many people are in front of you? He's like, no one. I'm like, are you first? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, man. Like, I guess I'll be first if I go in front of you. And so I, <laughs> so I absolutely sprinted in front of him, acting like I was all cool. And then uh, got into a forest and immediately, like, like keeled over and, like, looked, peered through the bushes back at him. And he was uh, trying to chase me, so I had to keep going. Uh, and I kept going on. And so if there's any open area, I would sprint to a place where there's cover. And I'd, like, lie down and, like, peer back and see where he was. Uh, and so that went on to the finish. And, and uh, that was the first win I had. So it was really dramatic. And then at the end, he's like, oh, you were so strong. Like, I, I, I was surprised to keep seeing you. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is, that is a bit strange. That you <laughs> I had to pee a few times. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's honestly one of the best, like, first place stories I've heard. It takes, it takes running scared to a new level. Like, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's the least graceful win ever. Uh, but it, it, it worked. <laughs> So how many times have you, you've done, I know you've done tour at least twice, but you've probably done more than that. Those are just the two that I know. I see. Yeah. Three. So I've done it three times. Yeah. Three times. Okay. So but what was the, f- I've never seen know. that before, by the way, that is mind blowing. That's totally <laughs> mind blowing. Well, I, there's something about we, that race. That we have to end this call difference. now. <laughs> 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 three tour uh, finishes. Just, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I think also, you know, like, um, don't you have the bug to try and go back? Because like, there's so much that can change, right? Oh, you have no idea. I have so many plans for tour. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, it, it, go ahead. No, no, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's, it's an, un. it took me a while to even begin to comprehend the race itself. Um, but then once you start thinking about it, like just that mem, I had a memory pop up that Torres exactly a year ago. Um, and it's so hard, but it's so, it, there's a mystique around it. Um, it's just so addicting and the atmosphere of it, just every aspect of it. And, and there's so much you can improve upon, um, which is, I, I would love to hear how each separate time went for you. Um, cause I've only DNF'd, uh, one time, um, well, he, which is a he got, yeah, big difference. He got lazy in 19 and did, and did dragons back and some other easier <laughs> ones, but I agree. I want yeah, to hear about each too. of these. Um, can you give us an overview just for the listener? If they're like, what, what are these guys talking about tour? I've never heard of this. Like what, what is this yeah. race? Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, it's a it's a nonstop race that goes from Cormier, which is on the UTMB course uh, and on the Italy side. So it goes in Cormier, it goes around this large valley uh, in a circle, and it goes over all the mountain passes, which I think there's about 27 or 28 mountain passes. So it's 200 plus miles. I don't. I, I think it's way more than 200, but they just stop counting after that. And uh, <laughs> 245 <laughs> is like some estimate. Is that yeah, about right? It, it, I think so. It just. Yeah, and it changes every year, so it's I, like I don't even pay attention to the distance because it's it's crazy. It's a good and, uh, strategy, in all honesty. <laughs> yeah, it's just I just pay attention to the time, so I have time blocks for each uh, section. Uh, but anyway, so it's yeah, and it's got about thirty thousand meters of elevation, which I think roughly is a I don't know ninety thousand uh, feet of elevation, and it's absolutely insane like like Alyssa, like you mentioned it's there's the hype around in the atmosphere like the everyone is so excited that you're in this valley doing their race and there's little kids on top of mountains passes that are cheering you on and 
you don't know if you're hallucinating, but I, I don't think I am. And they're uh, cheering you on. It's like 1 a.m. in the night. It's freezing cold on these mountain passes. And there's like an eight-year-old who's handing out, I don't know, like biscuits or something. So uh, everyone is so happy to see you. People want to take your photo and stuff. So it's, uh, it's, such, a, it's such an unbelievable atmosphere and an absolutely grueling and brutal race. I'm still, I mean, it's like Moab 240 and UTMB have a child that gets most of the genetics from the grandparents or something. It's like hard to, <laughs> hard to comprehend this race. So uh, how did you change your training for your first round at it? Uh, I, I did the sort of, uh, this is the year that I increased my training overall. So I would do longer runs, but I really had no idea how to train for something this long. So I just had a couple long days. I just put in several, I think about eight hour days in the mountains and then just hoped that that would work. Uh, and well, it didn't work that well the first year. Were, were you strategic <laughs> on races leading up or were you just picking iconic, like awesome races? I mean, what, was there a, a strategy behind this other than just try to get out for as much training as possible? It was, yeah, it was both. I chose very hilly races so all the races in the uk i'd solely choose them on the amount of elevation gain that they had uh which sometimes in the uk it's hard to get a lot of elevation gain but you can go to like the lake district uh snowdonia where the dragon's back is uh area and you can get some of that distance so i choose races yeah purely based on elevation gain and and descent so uh to really just try and get the legs ready for the absolute battering that the tortoise uh provides did, throughout 17 did you go to the track at all did you ever no. do speed work or anything of that nature? No, I've never been to a track, uh, but I do do speed work now on hills. Um, and I probably picked that up in 2018 when I even got, I continue to focus on and get even more serious. Gotcha. So how did that first tour go? It was absolutely mind blowing, uh, mind blowingly difficult. Like I didn't know I could be in that much pain and, and have my brain like totally explode. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> exactly how it is. I'm using that clip yeah. at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> That's great. But it's like I it got to a point where like I couldn't make sense of anything. I'd never had anything like it. Like I'd been at elevation because I climbed a couple mountains and like, it was a, sort of a similar feeling, except on crack. So you're uh, I, I, like the only, I think one way to describe it is you're it's like being very very drunk, except with any of the fun uh, about any of the fun stuff and. Uh, <laughs> So I was going and going and going, and now I'm just, I think it was probably the third night. And I remember, so I was hallucinating before, so uh, I was first doing the same thing I did in UTMB where I would look at something and it would, that object would change. Then things started appearing out of nothing. And then I was interacting with things that had appeared out of nothing. So I was talking to people that weren't there. That's next and level, yeah. Yeah, that, that was, it's so scary, especially because when I look back, I don't know if it was true or not, even post-race. So uh, telling you, they could have been ghosts too. I, I yeah, think I'm the only one that harps on this. <laughs> so, yeah, were you like laying out on the trail, like totally out of it, or were you just somehow pushing yourself to continue to to hike and somehow get down the downhills? Yes. Well, I had one moment where I, I think I was, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was wandering around just in circles on the trail and I didn't know what I was doing or where I was. And I just remember it was almost like one of the, the one TVs in the old day when they used to go just uh, black and white, like all crackly. I just remember seeing that. And then Whoa. 
I just came to almost, but I still on my feet. I didn't fall over anything. And I was looking around. I'm like, oh, it's really beautiful here in the mountains. This is uh, going into sunset or, uh, and getting to night. I was like, but it's getting really cold. Like maybe I should make a, a tent or a bivouac or something and just sleep and then try and figure out where I am and how I can call for help. And I, I was doing this for a while, just wandering around. I don't think I was going in the direction of the of the course until a, a, the next runner came up to me. I looked at his bib and then I looked down and saw my bib and I was like, oh yeah, I'm in a race. Like I totally forgot. Like, wait, what's a race? And then like, what's a race? Do you have to go in a straight line? Like whose line is it? And it was just like so weird and mind blowing. <laughs> I mean, so and so how did you solve this problem? Because, I mean, I've I've harped that, like, anytime you're hallucinating sleep, it, it seems to be, like, the single answer. I know Candace says that before all her races and stuff. I mean, did you know that that was the answer, or did you just end up running out of steam and just, like, crashing, burning, sleeping for an hour and then figuring things out? Uh, so, yeah, no, it was sleep that rescued me from this insanity so i i did the runner was an italian guy who's really nice and i was trying to talk to him about how crazy our race is and i don't know if it got lost in translation but he didn't really respond to me on that one uh but anyway i i wouldn't let him go because i was like if if he's gone and i'm out here by myself i don't know what is going to happen so i followed him and i wouldn't let him go until uh the refugio and then we both decided to take a nap um at this refugio and then i think we slept for about 40 minutes and that reset everything and then the craziness was dubbed down it wasn't never got to that level again that's good i will add to with tour um galen it's, it's a bit different in the states so a tour in most european races you can't have a pacer um mm. so so you don't have someone to kind of snap you out of anything and also um races in the u.s you can take like trail naps and tour that's really forbidden Oh, um, be- I didn't know that. Because, yeah, you can't stop at the side of the trail and take a nap because, you know, you're up in altitude, it's cold. Um, so you can get pulled from the race uh, really quickly if you if you do that. So right. is that accurate, yeah. Galen? Yeah. yeah, and I wouldn't want – yeah, I think at the time I was like, I, I don't want to sleep here. You know, it'd be too – it's too risky because it I think it, was, it gets the, the low zero or below, you know, freezing um, during the night. So that would have been great. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes it's funny when you look at the rules and you're like, oh wow, that's really harsh. And then you're like, no, you wouldn't want anyone out <laughs> to, by themselves in the mountains. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so how how did the finish of that one go? Like, where where were you with that? So I was, I think the, I, I finished that one in I think about eighty five hours. And so fast, holy cow! <laughs> yeah, eighty three, eighty three and a half. Okay, eighty three and a half. So what I was really scared of after having this episode and realizing how crazy that was as I was running through the fourth day, uh, I didn't want to go through a night again. So I was really trying hard to get into the finish line before the night came again. And so I was running and and, uh, I kind of shuffled and I think I got my motivation back into the afternoon because I was so scared of the evening coming. And uh, and then they got a little bit of competitive. There's I think there's like three or four guys right around me. I passed one guy uh, probably, well, in, in this race, it's close to the finish, about five hours before the end. And I got past an hour before the end. So I think the competition helped out too. And then running into Cormier is just one of those unbelievable feelings that it's hard to even describe. It's such a magical and euphoric moment. Yeah, I'll get tell, there one day. I mean, tell me, what, what does it feel like when you hit the pavement and – is the finish line near where UTMB finishes, or where where exactly is is that? Is is there a big arch, or yeah, 
it's a it's a, it's amazing. Uh, I think there's like a ramp town. or something, right? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, there's a ramp. It's a bit cruel. There, yeah, there is a ramp, um, and it's there for the whole time because finishers can finish from Wednesday right till Saturday evening. And uh, people are always around and, and clapping. And so it's always a really great atmosphere. So coming back to it, even after finishing, is, is a lot of fun. So you do run through town. So you run through Cormier, which is the start of CCC. And you come up to the finish, and the announcer is there. So he's announcing you, and it's it's a big ordeal. So it's a lot of it's, – it's so much fun. But it's so hard to describe what it feels like because my brain is so, so fried from the sleep deprivation. You cross the line. You look around, and you're just like, wait, I don't have to be moving or think about moving and uh, like hearing a walking poles or a hiking poles on on stones, you know, like click, click, click noise would literally like send me into like a panic. And so <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking like, oh, Shamini, by the way, I don't I don't know why I was thinking Shamini. Um, and, and so you just are in like a frenzy from days of doing the same thing. I mean, I I can kind of relate, but just the amount of gain you guys are doing getting down to the finish line are your quads just to the point where you can hardly walk or are you able to somehow reset that muscle group so it's not as painful i think it's a, it's a hobble so i'm not walking and i'm not running but it's a hobble and i think it gets to a point somewhere around mile 150 where the pain doesn't get anymore so it's just about managing it and once you know it's there you kind of you know, try your best to turn it off and it doesn't get any worse so you know it's not going to get any worse. You just have to deal with it. And so it's a hobble down all these descents uh, and just make the best you can of, of, of extremely, extremely sore legs. I, that was my mistake. I stopped at around 150. I should. Oh, yeah. It's, I was right there. Oh, the next bit's easy. <laughs> I, I, the bottoms of your feet go numb at that mileage. Like, right, it, you're exactly right, at least from my experience. Yeah. So then... Um, how in so i assume you decide okay i can do that better yeah so i think you alluded to it earlier that when you look back on the tour with your performance you're like there's so many areas that i can improve on because it's such a long race and so much stuff happens i think as soon as i got finished and and slept for a week uh i just thought about like oh i could do this better i could do this better the sleep uh, strategy could be better you know nutrition everything could just be better and so i was like i have to go back and see what i can do uh, and try and cut out time and, and yeah, just work on all the things that uh, I noticed during the time that I was like, oh, I did not do this well. And even knowing the course was a huge benefit because I'd really get psyched out when uh, you look at the map, but the map is so zoomed out that so it look, all the map looks like is up and down, big mountains. But when you're coming down the mountains, listen, you probably noticed this, when you come down the mountains, there's actually like 300 meter climbs or 1,000 foot climbs on the downhills, and then you keep yeah. going down. And so yeah. that would... When I was starting to hallucinate, that was really messing with me because I couldn't tell if I was like going backwards on the course or going forwards on the course. Uh, so, but knowing the course helped so much with that. That makes sense. So, what were some of those nutrition and sleep changes that you implemented? So the sleep, I, I had a very rigid sleep strategy going into the first one. So I was like, okay, I'm going to need to sleep here and here and here. So I would try, but I'd be too amped up or or too tired to go on. So that totally went out the window. And then it kind of messed with me because I was like, oh, my schedule's not working and I'm not going to plan. So the next year I was like, I'm just going to sleep when I'm tired. I'm going to push as hard as I can for as long as I can until I get to the brink of that totally meltdown brain part. And I'm going to sleep then. Uh, so... That was what that was probably a huge one that I changed. And then nutrition, I knew that I could. I had a lot of trouble with what I what I tried the first year. So I went to a totally different strategy of eating hard foods at, in the valleys. Um, and then when I got to the top, it was just liquid nutrition. 
So uh, that was a, that was probably a huge change that that helped a lot because I keep I, first year I tried to do my hard food at the top, but I think the exertion, the altitude, uh, didn't let my didn't let my stomach absorb it. What kind That's of brilliant? What actually, what kind of liquid calories were you using? Oh, just any any of those uh, sort of sports drinks. Like this past year, I used Morton, um, okay, which is really great and easy on my stomach. Oh, that's now that you say that that makes total sense and then you have the great aid stations it's yeah. easier temperatures to deal with it in the valleys yeah wow yeah that's really exactly. smart um so clearly second year you come in second so it worked <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh and I, what's crazy is just from working on it and doing all the stuff and actually probably training more specifically i think i shaved about 10 hours off your time and and if you tell someone, like, I did a race and then I did it again and I shaved 10 hours off, you're like, what? what? It's like half a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, the, I think all that stuff helps so much. Uh, and then, well, one reason the time was so low is because the, the local, the Italians, kept telling me that first place is right there. So this is a trick I, I later learned that they do for to make it more dramatic a finish. Um, so they kept telling me that the, the first, so this is at the end, the very end of the race. And Franco Cole, who ended up winning, they said, hey, Franco Cole is cooked and he's right over there. You just need to go get him. He's like five minutes, 10 minutes away. And I was like, really? Are you sure? I'm pretty sure he's like an hour away. Uh, and they kept telling me, no, 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 he's right there. So I, I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to refocus. And I started running uphill to the Col Malatra, the very last coal of the race, and uh, power hiked over there. And then I kept asking. And then I started noticing some discrepancies. When I'd ask Italian people how far ahead the guy was, they would tell me 10 to 15 minutes. But then when I'd ask anyone else, like Americans or Canadians or British people, they're like, oh, he's like 40 minutes ahead. So I'm like, oh, this is, I must be hallucinating. <laughs> uh, so I, I just ran so hard for that last uh, four hours. And it, he was actually 40 minutes ahead of me. That is that's so classic. I, I mean, I love Italy. I've lived there for two years, and that is such a classic Italian story because they I want know. the they want yeah. the excitement. <laughs> they just love the drama. Yeah, they really do. I mean, maybe in their heads, it is only fifteen minutes. Um, <laughs> how how does it feel trying to race tour? Because uh, I'm yeah. guessing ninety nine percent of humans that sign up for that race or ninety five are just trying to finish and so how is it going from your first time there just scared out of your mind you know almost like your utmb experience yeah bonking hallucinating bad to then being competitive and trying to win and then i mean in addition were you disappointed with your second place 40 minutes behind so yeah it's i think the hardest thing so racing um, so I had the mentality, yeah, like you mentioned, of going into the second year, and I'm, I was like, I'm going to race this, and I'm going to push hard and well, try and pace and, and do try and uh, compete for the win. So everyone starts off really hard, and it, I think it's easy to keep that competitiveness going for the first 100 miles, probably even um, 100 miles in a bit. But then when you get to the third day, third night, it's hard to keep the uh, sort of competitive juices flowing. So you're just like hiking along, just kind of taking in the scenery. You're like, oh, wait, I'm in a race. Like, like get moving. Uh, so it is super hard to stay focused, I think, on on being competitive. But uh, you just I try, try little mental tricks to keep me going. I have I have a really detailed timesheet of where I should be for each or how long each section from Refugio to Col, like Mountain Pass, uh, down to a village or aid station. And I, that, that's the way I try and keep focused is uh, just by having these time splits that are broken up to about an hour each. 
were were you disappointed? Oh, um, sorry. With with second place, was that like no, that year? Are you determined to go back and win it? Essentially. Yeah. So I think so. I I, I came in seventh the first year, second the second year. So that year when they were telling me about the the guys forty minutes or five minutes ahead. Uh, I was super excited to finish in second, and that I was even close to first. I was that totally blew my mind. Um, that I that so I was super excited and happy with that finish. But the, the next year I came back and I you know I was like okay I can change this and this and this and I can do even better. So the third year I did it and I came in second again. That was actually probably my most disappointing race I've ever had, which is funny because it was second and I am like I realize how um, you know how happy and appreciative I am of coming in, in second that year. But it was really disappointing because Alyssa, I think you mentioned you may have had some of this, but um, my throat was like starting to close a bit and I couldn't breathe very well uh, after the first night. So the second night I noticed it and I'm like, Oh, I'm having trouble getting air in. And I was having to take breathing breaks, which I thought was fatigue. And I was like, oh, that's a bit strange. I'm hiking up this, this, these mountain passes and I'm having to stop for a breath. So by the third night I was just crawling uphill and it was so frustrating because I, I thought I had the legs, I had the energy, I had like the mental focus and I just couldn't get breath in to, you know, to walk. Uh, and so that was probably the most frustrating finish. And, but yes, I do have a desire to, to return and try again. What, uh, <laughs> what do you think caused that? I think it, it was like the dry air, the cold, dry air. Um, and I, I, I stupidly didn't put anything over my face just to warm the air up as it went down. And I think it just probably irritated my throat so much that it started to close and I had insane mucus coming up. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I put it down I to. I swear Alyssa said the same exact thing. Oh, yeah. So there, I mean, Gail and I, yeah, Gail and I were not the only ones. Uh, I think there was a huge percentage of the field because it was so cold at night and it was snowing. Um that a lot of people were getting like altitude induced bronchitis or like similar kind of lung issues. Um, and believe me, I did the same thing where I had a buff around my neck and just wouldn't pull it over my nose. I know. I, yeah. Looking back, it's like such a stupid mistake I made and it could have, yeah, not ruined my race. Yeah. Or like taking more throat lozenges, you know, any number of those things that could have, but exactly the same thing. Like, I even think it was Monday morning. I just went, oh my goodness, I can't breathe. Like, what What are we doing? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, so frustrating. Because it's like this one little thing that's stopping me from actually racing. And I remember seeing um, Oliviero, Oliv- or, I'm not going to try his last name, but the guy who came in first, uh, he passed me. And he was so like geared up for the cold weather. So he passed me on the second morning. Uh, and he had like stuff over his face that was like quite thick. It was almost like one of those things that you wear when it's really, really cold. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like neoprene face mask almost uh and he had like glasses on and like so you couldn't see a bit of his skin of his face as he passed me and i was like huh that, and i hear i am like just not even wearing a hat uh <laughs> so i knew something was up and then later like obviously i couldn't breathe one uphill so that was were you, so frustrating were you confident while leading that race i mean so it sounds like you were leading for a while i i assume uh no i was never actually leading but i, I knew where I was in the race is exactly where I wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, so there was a guy ahead of me who I think I think he did end up finishing, but he finished in about 15th. So there was one guy ahead of me. Um, Oliviero was behind me. And I thought, because I always think if anyone's close to me around halfway around a race, I I always feel really confident that I can I can beat them. Uh, and and so I had everyone like kind of where I wanted them. And I thought that, oh, this is it. This is the year. And then it all obviously fell apart. 
mm-hmm. I mean, fell apart. And well, I yeah. know, I know the 77 the hours, like, <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> but it's, when you have the capacity to do better then um, it is disappointing. So I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> but so we've, uh, we've covered the tour, the, the beast that is tour um, and go to a different beast of uh, dragon's back. So was that, I mean, watching you out there, um, you and Jim working together was absolutely incredible. And uh, was that the first year you did Dragons? Yeah, that was my first, uh, yeah, Dragons experience, which was, was you know, just unbelievable. Yeah, that was, that was such a year. So walk us through that a little bit. And, like, what were your strategies? Um, did you come into it feeling feeling pretty confident? Um, yeah, I would love to hear more about that. What is Dragon's yeah. Back? Oh, and what also. is Dragon? I'm sorry. No, you guys both yeah. know it intimately well. I <laughs> these are these are some of the hardest races in the whole world, by the way, for the listeners' background. <laughs> Tour, I think, um, on Training for Adventure, we listed as the hardest 200 plus mile race in the world. Um, so, yeah, the Dragon's Back is is challenging in a totally different kind of way. So it's a five day race. It goes from the top of Wales and almost finishes in the very bottom of Wales. And it goes over the very sort of rocky spine of the country. And the thing that makes it really challenging is a lot of times there's no paths. And you're just wandering around this boggy kind of heather. And then there's like extreme rocks and scrambling. So there's a lot of very terrain with no paths. Uh, so the, each day is is quite long. I think, uh, well, in terms of time, it's an eight to ten hour day, tons of elevation and uh, off the top of my head, I don't actually know the distances. Alyssa, do you know what, what they typically were? Yeah, so I think the first day was the most climbing, so it was like 13,000 mm-hmm. feet, uh, a little over 50K. Um, and again, as Galen said, everything's approximate, so if you take a bad turn, uh, if you make a poor navigation decision, you can tack on a lot um, of mileage. But second day is, I think, a little over 60K, like 12,000 feet, um, super rocky, super technical, Third day is seven, a little over 70K, a little less climbing. I think it was only like 10. Uh, fourth day is, again, 70K, which I didn't know was that long. Only 10. I thought it was shorter. <laughs> um, but, again, less climbing, so like 8,000, much less technical, the fourth and fifth days. Um, and then fifth day is, I think, 65-ish and um, like 5,000 feet and, and more straightforward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it's a navigational race. So you got to get yourself around this course and no one's going to kind of show you how to do that, which yeah. was so like, yeah, that was an extreme challenge in itself. Um, but in terms of yeah, planning for the race, no, I'd never done the, well, I had done the trans Alpine race, but I did it with my dad and we kind of did it as an, as an experience. So I'd never done one of these competitively and I had no idea what to expect. So I talked to a lot of people who had done it before. And luckily I talked to uh, Marcus Scutney, who had won the previous race, uh, the year's edition. And he just told me a bunch of things like make sure you, you sort your kit as soon as you get in and don't dilly-dally because it's so easy to get stuck in the the, eat, the mess tent and just eat and talk to people because it's just such a great environment after the after each day. So I think I, I really benefited from a lot of what those guys uh, told me. And I didn't have too many expectations. Like I wanted to compete for the podium, but I knew Jim Mann was coming back, who's a legend here in the UK for uh, anything like this kind of distance and this kind of terrain. And there was several other really top guys in the race. Uh, so I didn't have too high expectations. Was looking for a podium, but would be happy just to just to come in top ten, really. Uh, and then 
Well, the, the, and then Alyssa, I'm sure you remember the, the beginning was just craziness going out of the castle, oh, uh, running along the castle walls. And then the fog, uh, or at least for me, the fog was there until we got to halfway point. So I had no idea where anyone yep. was. And there's no, uh, since people could start a little bit later, someone behind you could actually be ahead of you time-wise. So I had no idea what position I was in. And I got to the aid station and they said, oh, you're the, the first one through, which doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean first uh, because there could be someone like five minutes behind. I was like, oh, okay, that's that's strange. And then I kept going and I just didn't see anyone for the rest of the day. So I was like, what is happening? Like, have I hit all the points? Because you have to make sure you hit all the trig uh-huh. points where you register that you were there. Uh, and uh, yeah, then I crossed the line for the first day and they're like, yeah, you're the first one in. And then I waited five minutes and 10 minutes. I was like, okay, actually, probably I'm the first one for the day because now uh, it's been 10 minutes. I don't think anyone started 10 minutes behind. Yeah, but I was like, what's going on? Like, everyone must know something I don't know. So they must have held back more than I did. So I'm going to totally blow up later in, later in the race. Uh, but yeah, it did, it did work out. Um, and then <clears throat> the second day is probably where all the other competitors pushed me to try and, to, to try and break me kind of. Uh, cause I remember being in the tent after the first day and I said, who are you? Like, what, what are you doing coming in first? Like, like <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of like trying to sift out who I was. And what oh, was this I Canadian doing. guy. <laughs> oh, Caleb, we had the exact same experience, but please continue. I, I can take my piece after. They were like, who is this American? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Same experience. So they were like, we're in the tent and I think now probably the top 10 were in and we're all eating. And they're just like, so, uh, who are you? Where are you from? Like, you live in London? Like, what? Obviously, you've made a huge mistake going out too hard on the first day. Like, all right, this guy's no problem. Like, we'll just sort him tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Is that what you had to Alyssa? They're like, what, so, what are you doing? Because I think you were even second or third. Uh, yeah. So I, I had the same situation where my coach literally said to me, hey, don't be, don't go first through them. Don't be in first going through the first checkpoint or the first aid station. <laughs> Lo and behold, who's in first going through the first aid station? Um, I was, I think, I, I like three minutes behind Sabrina on the first day. Um, she'd started a little bit later than I did, but I came in first woman into the, the finish. And literally exact same thing. All the British people going. I remember Sabrina coming up to me going, so who are you? That's awesome. I was and like, like that too, right? <laughs> yeah, we actually had her on the podcast, so so Rob, She's awesome. Rob knows her. But yeah, yeah. Um, and then they're like, "Oh, the second day, because the second day is much less marked, really technical." I'm sure they're all thinking like, "Oh, these silly ones." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, well, yeah, we'll we'll show them who's boss tomorrow, exactly. um, which is what they tried to do, and it almost worked. So they, I don't know if you had the same situation, but so you can go through anytime you want. You can start the day whenever you want. Uh, they do ask the people who finish first to start last. So I was waiting around, and then the top four guys were also waiting around, and we're just eyeballing each other. And yeah, yeah it was like it was a standoff. And so no one wanted to be the first one through. So we're all waiting, pretending to stretch and hydrate and whatever. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to go because this is, this is silly. So I went, and as soon as I went, they all lined up, and then they all went too. And they waited like you know a minute so that um, I was a little bit down the road. And so it was this huge race we had probably in the first half of the day. So first it was Conrad, who's the husband of Jasmine Paris. So like they are very, very good runners and he's excellent on the Hills. And so I was trying so hard just to keep up with them on the Hills, but I could run a little bit faster in the descents. So for the first three peaks, um, I was with him and we we're playing cat and mouse a little bit. 
And then um, I made, there's a big descent into a town. So I had, I had passed him and I was like, well, finally some breathing room. And uh, I was just going and trying to hydrate, get my calories back in. And Jim man like zooms by me on the downhill. And I'm like, oh no, not again. So I had to try and catch up to him. And we play cat and mouse for until about uh, the halfway point. And at which point we start running together and start talking. And I, I'm a little bit in awe because Jim is such a legend over here in the UK. Yeah, and uh, so we're running together for a while and, and we're talking. Uh, and he tries to drop me at the at one of the aid stations, at the only aid station, uh, by by turning around really quickly. Like he looks like he's going to go sit down and you know eat and stuff, but he actually sits down, then sees me sit down, and then he gives his bag back and ran off. Uh, so <laughs> that's a, so that's a trick a move I've never heard of. That's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. Such a strategy race. Yeah. So, so did you take off? Well, I'm usually pretty quick in the in the turnarounds, and I don't think he's expecting it because. So I, I already had all my stuff mixed, so I just exchanged my water bottles and grabbed a couple of gels, and I was doing that anyway. And then I looked up, and he was like gone. I could see him down the, the path. So I, I sprinted after him, and then I caught up to him. But when I caught up to him, he like looked really surprised, and I think it, it kind of – he got shocked a little bit by that. And so I was able to – then I started pushing hard. I'm like, all right, he's a bit – you know, that was uh, it took him off guard. And so I pushed and pushed, and I did get a gap on him uh, on the second day, which then I carried into the finish of the second day. So I put some more time on, on him. Uh, and then the third and fourth day, we actually just ended up running together. Uh, so luckily for, for me, I think Jim had just had his first child. And so he was probably sleep deprived and hadn't trained very well. So that's why I was able to fortunately uh, run with him for days threes and four and then just finish it out on day five. Throughout, throughout that race, was there any point where you were scared for your life? I know it sounds goofy, but there were some serious drop-offs. Like, yeah. I know. Yeah. Like one misstep, and you're you're going down a few hundred feet left or right. I mean, at any point, were you concerned? Like, did the wind pick up, or did you have to backtrack yeah. at all on any section? Yeah, well, absolutely. Like on Crib Gawk, which is the the famous one, the the spine that is so insanely steep. I, yeah, I remember because I'm like, okay, just don't think about it. You're in a race, so just keep going quickly. And then I got to a section. And uh, I've asked someone before, like, how do I know which way to go on Cribgok? They're like, oh, it's obvious. Just follow the the place where it looks like there's a lot of footprints and, and crampons, because apparently people climb this in the winter We're using crampons, so there's marks on the rocks. So I got to a, a, a point where the right-hand side was a sheer cliff, and the left-hand side was a very steep incline that you probably roll down the whole thing if you fell, but it felt more comfortable. So I got to this spot where you had to kind of get go out on the right over the exposed cliff and then up. And I was like, that can't be right. Like, that is just insane. Like, they'd never have a race where you actually had to do this. So I, like, looked to the other side. I couldn't figure it out. Looked again. I'm like, I see the crampon marks going this way. And I'm like, oh, man. I don't know what I'm going to do here. And uh, I think I, like, looked around and, and kind of, like, paced back and forth for a second. I'm like, all right, I just, I just got to do it and not think about it. But, yeah, when I was doing that, my heart was in my mouth. And I was like, if I slip or a gust comes, I'm going to be dead. Uh, so, I, yeah, I was extremely scared. My, my adrenaline's going and <laughs> it was uh, it was such an experience. And so the way you handled that was like essentially turn your brain off. Don't think, just put yeah, exactly. Go primal and <laughs> put one foot yeah. down. I mean, were you like three points of contact at at each move at at that juncture? Oh, yeah. yeah, at least three. I was thinking four, four. or five points. Of contact. Five. <laughs> <laughs> Tongue is on the rock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's uh, the first. So I went over Crib Gawk just on a practice run, and it was all um, 
claggy. It's still like a bunch of fog and it was raining. And I went off to the right because I didn't know any better. And oh my goodness, I was like, I'm free climbing back up this section. And if I fall, I'm dead. Um, wow. So the actual day of the race, <laughs> um, because I went left, there were people up there because there are marshals that are making sure you're, you're okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're in the race and such, and it was such a relief the second time because I'm sure – I think everyone going into the race is thinking about if I just don't die on Crib Gawk the first day, I think I'll be good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just get over Crib Gawk and then the, everything doesn't seem as bad. Yeah. I mean – But it's definitely an element – like I cannot imagine having that in the States in many ways, like having that element. Um, oh yeah, same in Canada. Like they, I don't think they'd just allow it. It's just yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, there'd be so much liability. I don't think they'd let it happen. Yeah, I, and, and I actually asked the Rangers one time when I was in the in the national park, and they said, "Yeah, people die on that cock like yearly." And I was like, "Oh, oh, okay." <laughs> it's like some of the 14ers in Colorado. I that race is just unbelievable. I think Alyssa's a bad influence on me. I'm, I'm like, ready to sign up for some really stupid races eventually. It's like a bucket list uh, race for sure. So what's... Well, it is such a great race. What... Um, I'm going to ask just a few more questions. I appreciate all your time. I know your kids are sleeping. Right. Uh, what has been your favorite race that you've done? Kind of like favorite trails that I want to hear about. Like, do you have anything lined up this year, or are you so focused on 2021 at this point? I want to hear more about kind of future plans for you, future goals. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think, well, back to the favorite race, I think the Dragon's Back, anything that's ridiculously technical and hard, I just really enjoy uh, later. And I think the Tortoiseon is probably my favorite. I, I can't get it out of my head. I've actually had dreams about it and, like, nightmares where they've canceled the Tortoiseon, and I'm like, oh, no, like, the tour is canceled. And that's like been quite a bad nightmare for me. Um, <laughs> so I, but in terms of this year, I ha- I don't have any plans. I just like because I for a lo- the longest time through this year, I was I kept having race, well, like everyone else having race after race canceled. But I kept putting it off like, oh, uh, this one won't be canceled, or this one will work out, and it gets canceled. So I've just decided that I'm just gonna not do anything this year. Just train, do a b- bunch of uh, exploring. And then uh, for next year, I do have a couple ideas. I'm, I'm hoping they'll go ahead. So there's the uh, the Montane Yukon uh, Arctic Ultra, which is oh, uh, cool. yeah. So I was thinking about doing that in January, I believe, or February, uh, which is and this year they're doing the 430 mile version of it. So it's in the Yukon and it's uh, it goes along the, like the the river. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I think I'm actually trying to decide between the Dragon's Back and the Tour for for next year as well. So it'll be Bing. one of those. Things. They moved it, so now they're yeah, conflicting, same, which makes me really sad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they actually added a sixth day to it, so it's, it yeah. is going to be more grueling. Definitely, I'm curious to see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Definitely. I mean, my last question I'll let Alyssa finish here is like, what advice do you have for guys that are just getting into ultra running? Maybe someone that's 50 pounds overweight, just a hockey player. Um, <laughs> or, or even the season ultra runner that's looking to like really push your limits and try something stupid, difficult, you know, stupid hard. And like, what words of wisdom do you have? Well, I don't have much wisdom, but it like it worked for me. But I think it's just when the goal is so huge and hard to comprehend, I just I just break it down. Uh, so for the training, it's it's just a long build up to get to the the mileage that you're kind of aiming for. And even in the race, when the 
when the challenge is so monumental, you can't, or at least I can't get my head around running for 200 plus miles in the mountains. So it's just really breaking it down into small chunks and manageable chunks to, to keep going and just never stop. And, and like, I, I can get there and like, I was an awful runner to start with. So if I can do it, I think really anyone can do it. My, my last question and I'll throw it to Alyssa. What is your guilty pleasure food following a 245 mile race with 90,000 feet of gain or whatever it is. What, what is like, what are you opening the fridge and grabbing or what are you ordering to celebrate? Well, if they had it in Cormier, I'd probably have Ben and Jerry's, which I usually do in the UK, but I, I haven't been able to find it. So I usually right after the finish, there's a great uh, hamburger place uh, just down the street on the main finish line. So we sit outside and watch other finishers come in and have a, have a pint and, and a burger. But the, the, Sad part of it is though is every like the in the lining of my mouth is so deteriorated that everything tastes like it's like almost sulfuric acid. So ketchup is like the most acidic thing ever. So if you try and have a, a French fry with with ketchup on it, it's like it burns your mouth. Um, so but anyway, it's it's going to be a burger and a and a pint. Nice. That's a good response. So where can we follow you um, for your upcoming adventures? And um, do you do any coaching or anything like that? No, uh, no coaching. Uh, I'm just, I periodically post to Instagram. So it's just Galen run, um, on Instagram. That's kind of, uh, yeah, the best place to, 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 to connect. If you got any questions, yeah, feel free to shoot out or, uh, to message. Can't wait to follow awesome. you. I'll, I'll keep following, um, to watch you win tour. I, I know it's going to happen in the next few years. I, I, I put my money on you. So, uh, good luck. Good luck with training, and, and thanks for taking so much time to join us on the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm, I'm, it's so amazing to actually be a part of this podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Galen. I really, really appreciate it. And Rob, I see a future film project for you. What's freaking amazing is this ultra sign-up. I can't stop looking at it. <laughs> Galen, <laughs> you're, you're amazing. You're truly inspiring, and, and let's stay in touch. For sure. No, thank you. You guys are the best. That was episode 165. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Big thank you to Galen for taking so much of his time. He's such a humble guy. He never said anything. So it never got released to the public. And uh, he was just being patient and waiting. And uh, Patreon supporters love this episode. Big shout out to you guys. I, I really couldn't do all this without your support. Uh, you know, Big thank you to Exoskin. Their support's awesome in both podcasts and all the film work. Big shout out to Alyssa Clark for co-hosting this episode. It was really fun hearing her questions again, and we'll have to catch up with her here soon. So guys, thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to enjoy your training. Have a great week.